tossed it ahead. It got on to Kovalchuk, and Kovalchuk a shot that's carefully played away by Lundqvist. Now Ponogorovsky with it. Two away in front, blocked there. Scramble for it there. They pump the way at it. Still it's loose. Pumped out by Kovalchuk. They score! And three! It's over! That is a great, great hockey call by Doc Emmerich right there. That that is awesome. Yeah, he's one of the best. That he that was perfect. It, that that's the kind of thing. Like if you're a Devils fan, you have that forever. Like that yeah, that yeah. was that was unbelievable. Uh, well, he is the Devils guy. Yeah. So I mean that, that probably. Helps but he's too, always but fair too. No, he's good. He's good. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the Sportscasters. It's season two, episode twenty one. Uh, May 29th, 2012. We're live from beautiful Buffalo, New York. Uh, my name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh, Tuesday after a holiday here in the United States of America, Memorial Day. Thanks to all the troops out there. Gave us a beautiful day off yesterday. Everything they do, we appreciate. Last week on the podcast, episode 20, we had Kenny Albert, uh, the Rangers radio broadcast of that goal be interesting to look up, maybe. Maybe not quite as excitable as Doc Emmerich's call. Although, Kenny told us last week on this show that they don't do a Homer broadcast, according to, yeah. to Kenny. So, I'm sure he was excited then, I would imagine, <laughs> if you don't do a Homer's broadcast. Uh, also, we had uh, our boy Ass with a T, uh, right. Tass Mellis, yep. on the show from the Basketball Jones uh, podcast. And we also had an author named Jeff Benedict, who had written a uh, book on the next great quote-unquote the next LeBron James Jabari Parker. You can find that episode 20 on our website www.sports-casters.com Now as for the show today, episode number 21 of season 2 uh, we have some things to do. One, Greg Wyshynski biggest Devils fan that we know I think Don. Yeah that's fair. Yeah. Uh, he's going to be on the podcast, Puck Daddy uh, Somebody said to me on Twitter, I'll give a shout out to a really good fan uh, named Ford uh, who tweets us on Twitter? He says, "Can't believe you guys are getting Puck Daddy on the week of uh, Stanley Cup." You know, and I said, "That's that's what we do." You know, that's what we do. <laughs> that's right. You know, Lee Jenkins calls us from his hotel before going out for Game One of the NBA Finals, and Puck Daddy talks us before he gets on the train to go to New Jersey for Game One of the Stanley Cup Finals. Now, Seth Davis, on the other hand, he told us to go f off uh, during the uh, March <laughs> Madness, but you know we had Luke Quinn for that, so that's kind of what we do. Greg Wyshynski is going to join us, and then we have two authors. It's been a busy month for books, a uh, really busy month for books. Uh, Mark Cram Jr. is going to join us to finish the last interview for kind of the four books of this month's book club, and we'll go over them all again one more time. And then at the end, we're going to have an author named John Fox. He's not the head coach of the Denver Broncos, but he did write a book called The Ball. So we're going to make all kinds of ball jokes with him. We do, yes. Yeah, later in the show. Uh, also, uh, we're going to update the book club, like I said. We're going to update our book club giveaway contest, which is already next week's show that yeah, we're going to have. coming quick, yep. Um, so we'll go over that one more time. Uh, but we're going to start the show. Oh, we have pick four at the end, of course. Uh, we're going to start the show the way we start all our shows, and that's the three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. 
count of three. One. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> All right, well, we started the show off with Doc Emmerich's great call of the overtime game winner by Adam Henrique for the Devils in Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals, which means the Stanley Cup is set. Uh, the New Jersey Devils will host Games 1 and 2 in Newark uh, in the Rock, the, the Rock uh, brand-new beautiful arena that the Nets have abandoned. <laughs> They'll play the Kings, Los Angeles Kings. Kings are making their first appearance in the Cup since 1993. The Devils are making their first appearance in the Cup since 2003, which is kind of a big layoff for them. It, it, there was sure, a point yeah. where it seemed like the Devils uh, were in the, in the Cup every year. Uh, the Devils have been made favorites. Wow. Um, or no, excuse me. That's okay. wrong. The Kings have been named favorites, but it's close. Uh, the Kings are just about a 2-1 to one favorite. They're a minus 170. Yeah. So you have to that bet. Seems right. You have to bet one hundred and seventy dollars to win a hundred. The Devils are a plus one fifty. So for every hundred you you bet, get hundred. You get one hundred and fifty. Um, some other odds: Kings to sweep, seven to one. Uh, Kings in five, nine to two. Kings in six is three to one. Kings in seven is five to one. Devils to sweep is the best money. That's fourteen to one. Uh, Devils in five, seven to one. Uh, Devils in six, seven to one. And Devils in seven is five to one. Uh, Con Smythe, uh, Justin or Jonathan Quick is eleven to ten. Wow! Uh, <laughs> to win the. I mean, Conn granted, Smythe. the Con Smythe is for the entire tournament, entire playoffs. So maybe they feel like he's earned it already type of thing and that's a bet you're just not gonna make no why would there's you? no reason to make that bet <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially now you could probably get pretty comparable odds when the devil when the kings have three wins in the series sure I mean, it's not gonna get much worse than 11, 11 to 10. 10 no uh dustin brown is four to one okay he's second martin brodeur is the best for the devils he's four to one uh, Ilya, How is Zach Parise not better odds than Zach Parise is twelve to one. That might be the best odds on the board. Parise and Kopitar. Kopitar is ten to one, and Parise is twelve to one. I mean, I guess it's possible. They probably see a scenario where even if the Devils win it, Jonathan Quick wins the award, which has happened. Which is why he's probably eleven right. to ten. But maybe Parise hasn't put up the numbers, and that's happened to Roder once before. Yeah. Where he's won the cup and the other goalies won the con Smythe. John Sebastian Borg, uh Jaguar and Anaheim, right? Right. Um uh, some longer shots. Dustin Penner is a fifty to one. David Clarkson of the Devils is thirty to one. Uh there's also some fun props for the cup this year. Will a goaltender win the Con Smythe trophy? You gotta lay two hundred and ten bucks to win a hundred. Uh you win one seventy if you say no for every hundred. Um, will a player from the losing team be awarded the Conn Smythe? You can get 15-1 to 1 if you want to take wow. that. That's surprising considering how high they have Jonathan Quick. They must just not think the Kings are losing. Now here's some really cool ones. Uh, total games in the series over under 5.5. Uh, total goals in the series over under is 28.5. You can bet how many games will go into overtime over under 1.5. 
28 how, and a half seems awfully high. How many shorthanded goals will the Kings score in the series? The over-under is <laughs> only a half. So one goal. They get one shorthanded goal, and they've gotten a ton this postseason. Will there be a suspension? <laughs> it's minus 500 for no. Plus 300 for yes. Wow. So, like the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's interesting. There's some really cool odds. These odds are from the former Bodog, by the way. Which it's Former? Kinda, yeah, it used to be Bodog. Now it's like Bovada, it's called now. Okay. Uh, so that is what was known yeah, as Yeah, I Bodog. wish I had some disposable income because some of those seem, what would seem you, pretty interesting. What bet would you most – let's say I give you $100 to bet in this series. I think I would bet that the Conn Smythe winner comes from a losing team and then just hope the Devils win. I mean, that, that pays 15 to 1. Like you said, the odds on – they have Quick at 11 to 10 right now, so they're assuming Quick is going to win this thing, but they must not be assuming that the Devils are going to win the series. So, But the Cubs starts – Tomorrow, Wednesday, we're recording this on Tuesday, and we're going to get into it into much greater detail sure. with Greg Wyshynski right after this. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, my first thing this week. Uh, it's kind of a cool story. Tennis in America isn't exactly doing great. The top-ranked tennis player, men's tennis player, is John Isner. Is it Eisner? Isner? I'm not sure. Top uh, U.S.-ranked player. Top U.S.-ranked right. player. He's ranked number 10, uh, and we haven't had a winner since Andy Roddick in 2003. In the French Open? That was at the United States Open. Oh, a last, major winner last, at all. Last American to win a major, right. It was the United States Open. Well, what about Sampras? That was after 2003. Really? Wow, Sampras has been gone that long. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, so here's a kind of a cool story about the TFO family. Uh, Constant, who was the father, and his boys, Francis and Franklin. Uh they didn't grow up wealthy. They immigrated from Sierra Leone with their mother, Alfina, who didn't have much money. And Alfina had, an, they lived in an apartment, not in the greatest of neighborhoods. And Constant ended up getting a job building and then later working for this country club. So there's rich people everywhere. He's not. He works as basically the janitor for the country club. And they end up letting him live there in basically a 120-square-foot room with a window. Uh, and his kids, I guess, live there for about five days a week. This story is all in the New York Times. It's a pretty cool story. Uh, he ends up living there with his kids about five days a week. And through this, his kids end up spending a lot of time watching people play tennis, watching coaches teach tennis. And I guess after the older – they couldn't afford to put them in tennis programs, which costs – Around $28,000 a year for some of those wow. uh, elite tennis programs. But the kids would be exposed to it a lot, and they would sometimes hit balls by themselves. And eventually they get uh, – Francis especially was – his talent came out. At 8 years old, he got a coach. And now he's – Francis is 14 years old, and he's the top-ranked player in the world. I mean, that's – So that's we got a kid coming. Yeah. At 14 years old, he's the top-ranked 14-year-old. In the world, his brother, I guess, is pretty solid, too. They say he's a little bit of a hothead, but <laughs> I guess Roger Federer, when he was a young kid, was a, was a hothead, too, and they said they grow out of it. But just a real cool story uh, to check out. It's kind of people like when, like with a band, for instance, maybe you find a band and you kind of discover them before other people do. It's kind of fun to grow up with that band. Well, the New York Times kind of, I guess, not discovered this kid. He's number one in the country at his age group, but... The 14-year-old kid, who knows? Uh, this could be what men's tennis needs. We don't have a, a U.S.-born player. 
be a, a foreign player. I mean, he's a United States kid, but that immigrated over. So it's kind of like the all-American dream in this kid. Yeah, and you know, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Serena and Venus Williams and their story. Sure. You know, because they grew up in constant Los Angeles. You know, they weren't the richest of kids. And I, I did look it up. Sampras has, has – I can't believe he's been retired this long, but he last won a major in 2002, the U.S. Open. Wow. So, you know, but he did win 14. So, yeah, so keep an eye out for Francis and Franklin Tiafo. And, you know, we're going to have to say that because I'd like to see what Wertheim has to say oh, about yeah, that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So next time we have John on, we're going to have to remember to uh, ask him about that. All right. Since the last podcast, the NBA playoffs – has officially gotten down to four. So last week we knew that the Spurs and the Thunder would play each other in the Western Conference Final. And uh, we have learned since the last podcast that the Celtics and Heat are playing in the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, each series has played one game up to this point. The Spurs remain undefeated in the playoffs. Crazy. uh, Beating Oklahoma City in game one and last night the Heat beat the Celtics and here's what I I didn't see much of the game but I turned it on because everyone on my timeline was complaining about the refs really apparently that's that's, that's, that's shocking coming from basketball apparently the refing was atrocious Uh, a lot of people have said it was really brutal but I think what we're closer to in basketball First of all, basketball is going to get a good final. Sounds like you it. know what I mean. I think any combination of those four, they'll be happy with. They it, they probably want the Heat there. They definitely I, want I, the Heat there. But the alternative is the, the Celtics, Celtics, which right. is one of the biggest franchises ever. Right. You know, so I, it's almost sure they want the Heat because they want LeBron, LeBron and yeah. they want D Wade, and you know they want the sideshow that is. We're not going to win four, but we're going to win five. We're right, going to win six. Right, all right. that, you know. But then they also have. If they don't get the the Heat, they get the Celtics and all the history and all their fans. It's probably the second biggest basketball franchise behind the Lakers. Right. Right? It's Lakers and Celtics. Then in the West, they have either Oklahoma City, which is a great young team with very marketable stars in a league that loves to market stars like Durant and Westbrook. Or you get the Spurs and you get Duncan and Parker and Ginobili and Popovich, and everything that is the Spurs. So I think the NBA is going to get a great final. Personally, I'd love to see the Heat and Oklahoma City. Part of me would love to see that because I want to see Durant and LeBron. Right. But the other part of me, ever since we've had Ballard and I read that piece on Duncan, kind of wants to see Duncan get another one. So I'm a little torn as to who I want, but I guess, you know, nobody cares about that anyway. But... uh <laughs> Yeah, the NBA is down to four, and what they're going to get is they have good conference finals, and they're going to get a great final, and it seems like this playoffs has gotten more and more interesting as it's gone on. First round was a total dog. Second round was a little bit better, and now the conference finals have started off good and could be great, and then they should have a really good final. So I I think the NBA a long time ago made a mistake when they changed that first round from five to seven because the first round is just always a dog. Pointless, yeah. It's always a dog. And – I wonder. You hear a lot of. There's a lot of parallels with the NFL and or the NHL and the NBA, and I'm not sure where each stack up. I know the NHL, as far as ratings go, isn't very high on the totem pole. I'm not sure where the NBA is, but I wonder how much of it has to do with refereeing. After every game, it seems like in both sports, 
it's either uh, a legitimate complaint about the ref or a perceived uh, problem with the, the refereeing. And I don't know if it's just the games are too – the refereeing is too open to interpretation. But you always hear that about both of those sports. I try not to go crazy on refs, but it was so overwhelming on Twitter, Twitter last night yeah. that I had, to, I had to look into it. Yeah, I try, I, you try not to blame refs because there's nothing you can do about it. If you start blaming refs, you're just going to end up pulling your hair out. My second thing this week, uh, Nick Fairley, going back not too long ago, was drafted, what, two years ago? And for a while, he was really near the top of draft boards. Like right. Maybe even rumored at like one or two before uh, Bradford had that crazy He's the dominant camp. player on the field. He fell and fell and fell. And the Bills passed on him. He ended up being a second-round pick, teams. Right? Yes, or a really late first-rounder. But, yeah, I think it was a second. I like the Lions pick. They had Fairley next to Sue, two big, mean defensive tackles. But, man, is Fairley looking like he's a problem. Yep. Uh, he got arrested again for – I'm not sure if you heard the charges, but it, it's, it's a laundry police. list. Yeah. He was cited for reckless driving, no proof of insurance, and an open container. So he wasn't messing around. Did you see his mugshot? I did not. He's smiling. Is he really? He's totally oblivious. Yeah, and apparently he passed Alabama State Troopers early Sunday morning going 100 miles an hour in his Cadillac Escalade. Uh, And after initially refusing to stop for the troopers' emergency lights and sirens, he eventually pulled over and seemed impaired. He was arrested without incident. But wow, uh, this offseason... Among other things, the story might be the Lions might be the new the new Bengals, uh, the NFL, and I, I know their coach is not happy about uh, the the reputation that the team has kind of. They've getting. had the Titus Young incident, Michael Ashore, who had a marijuana possession charge. Right, this so, is fairly second time. Yes, I mean they've had arrest after, and this isn't like secondary players. Some of the, I mean, Titus Young isn't exactly Calvin Johnson, but he's a player on the team. Michael Ashore is a guy that was. Expected. I mean, if you play fantasy football last year, Michael Ashore is a popular name because of the Javid Best fragility, I guess right. you would say. It's not good. Uh, we talk about how sometimes we had been talking about how a lot of our football stories have been overwhelmingly positive after the bounty gate and the concussions and stuff like that. Lately, it seems like they've had a good turn to them, but, man, the Lions have not been a part of that. They Not not a good off season. The Bengals have, have, have to be smiling about this. All right, my third thing. I want to get a little baseball in. I'm going to focus on the National League East. National League East, of course, is the Washington Nationals, New York Mets, Miami Marlins, Philadelphia Phillies, and Atlanta Braves. It's a really interesting division this year for a couple reasons. One, at this point, every team in the division has at least 26 wins. For comparison's sake, Cincinnati Reds and St. Louis Cardinals each have 27 wins to lead, lead the Central. Wow. Uh, the Dodgers have 32 wins, the most in the National League. Second place in their division has 26. So every team in the National League East would be no worse than second place in the other two divisions. Right, right. Well, it's been an interesting week for them. Uh, one, the Braves are in the midst of an eight-game losing streak. Their record is 26-24, and 24, and they have had to put Chipper Jones on the DL this week. Yep. And now the Phillies, who were maybe the favorite going into the season, have to put news comes out today that Roy Halladay, who left his start yesterday, is out the next six to eight weeks because of a strained right shoulder. He's going to be out about eight weeks. So the Braves and the Phillies, 
who are actually in th- fourth and fifth place right now, are going to be without two of their biggest stars for a bit. Poor Chipper Jones, too. Didn't he announce that this was like his swan yep. song? This is his second injury already. So that means that at the top of the division, the Nationals, the Mets, and the Marlins have a chance to maybe distance themselves a little bit. Yeah. Now, the Phillies are probably the one team in the league that can Catch afford up. to lose a Halliday for a little bit and be okay. I mean, Cole Hamels is maybe the National League Cy Young winner so far. Plus, they have Cliff Lee. Uh, but the Nationals are in first place, 29-19. And I, w- I just want to say this. If you haven't seen Bryce Harper play baseball yet, if you haven't seen Steven Strasburg pitch yet, do it. The Nationals, maybe more than any other team other than the Dodgers, I think are the most appointment television in Major League Baseball right now. Sure, and if you're not a baseball fan, we talked to, uh, I can't remember her name, was Katie something about hockey. Katie Baker? Katie Baker, that's right. She wrote an article about if you're looking for a team. It seems like if you're looking for a team, the Nationals might be the team because you can get in on the ground floor with Strasburg and Harper. And two of the coolest young stars. Right. Yeah, Yeah, so it's an interesting thing to – Keep an eye on the National League East in the next few weeks with Philadelphia and Atlanta having some injuries. It'll be an opportunity for Washington, who's currently in first, maybe to build on that lead. And the Mets, who are maybe one of the biggest surprises in baseball. Sure. And R.A. Dickey is another guy who's lighting up the league at 8-1 and one after he put out his tell-all book. The Mets are a worry, though, because despite their 27-22 and 22 record, they have a negative 23 run differential. Yeah, that's a lot. The, the Nationals are a plus 29 in comparison. So, interesting division, and uh, we're going to talk more baseball next week on the show with Albert Chen. He's going to yeah, be on with us. Yeah, I always kind of mention about baseball that the toughest thing about a casual being a casual fan in baseball, or if you're not a fan at all, the toughest thing you always point to is the number of games. The one thing amazingly about baseball is even, even with 162 games, there's always close races in there. It, doesn't, it almost doesn't make sense, but... And that division just shows how tight it can be after about, what, 50 or so games? Yeah, I mean, games. all five teams are, are separated by, like, three games in the win column. Yeah, that's amazing. My last thing this week is I just want to say congratulations to Baylor, the Baylor Bears, and that's all of them, football, basketball, baseball, women's basketball. Uh, I'm not sure who exactly keeps track of this, but they have had two – depending on how you add it up, record-setting D1 years. Uh, Their football team had 10 wins. The men's basketball had 30 wins, and the women's basketball had 40 wins for a combined total of 80 wins and a combined record of 80 and 11. Wow. Giving them a .879 win percentage. That's uh, the best all-time over second-best UConn, who was 78 and 10, who actually had the slightly better win percentage there. But they set the win percentage mark if you also throw in their baseball team. Uh, they had 10 win, uh, ten football, 30 basketball, 40 women's basketball, and 44 baseball wins, which gave them a 124 combined wins. So, Baylor, uh, it's a great year to be, I guess, if, of anybody, maybe the biggest winner in that is just the student body. That's got to right. be fun all year long. And, sport I mean, and they beat Texas this year. They beat Oklahoma this year for the first time. Robert Griffin won the Heisman Trophy. Sure, He's drafted second overall. I mean, it could not it couldn't have been a better year to be a Baylor sports fan. Yeah, so congrats to the Bears. Good job, Baylor. All right, so that's three things for today. Uh, rest of the show is going to look like this. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back, preview the Stanley Cup Finals with Greg Wyshynski, the Puck Daddy. We're also going to interview two authors today, Mark Cram Jr., who's been a sports writer for 25 years. His father is one of the great sports writers of all time in the 
um, beginnings of Sports Illustrated. We'll talk to him a little bit about that and about his book. We're going to have uh, one last book club update for the month of May with this giant stack of books that we've been going through. And uh, then after the Mark Cram interview, we're going to talk a little bit more about our book club contest that we have. Interview John Fox, unfortunately not the coach, or maybe fortunately not the coach of the Broncos, <laughs> depending who's listening right now. Right. If John, if our John is listening, it's unfortunately. If our John, or it's fortunately. If our John is listening, it's unfortunately. Sure. Right? Something like that. Yes. Something like that. <laughs> if the guy we interviewed is listening, we want to make it sound like we're glad we got that John Fox. Right. But if the guy that we interviewed isn't listening, it's kind of a bummer that it wasn't the head coach of the Broncos. That would have been a great gift for us. That's for sure. Right. That's all I'm saying. Okay. And then we'll do pick four. So <laughs> let's take a break. We'll come right back with Greg Wyshynski, the Puck Daddy. <laughs> Our first guest today is from Medawan, New Jersey, and is a graduate of the University of Maryland. He is the editor and main contributor of the Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo Sports. He is the co-host of the Merrick vs. Wyshynski podcast. The Hockey News has named him the 92nd most powerful man in hockey. He is making his sixth appearance on the podcast today. Warm sportscasters, welcome to the very excited Greg Wyshynski. What's up, Puck Daddy? Ah, uh, you know, same old, same old, Devils in the Cup Final, as usual. So this, all right, so I said this is the sixth time that you've been on the show, right? Well, I remember the first time you were on the show was at the, be- like, maybe like 30 games into uh, the last hockey season, and the Devils were awful, and we were talking to you about draft, and like, you kind of had your eye on... The draft, and then the second time we talked to you, the Devils were kind of turning it around, but probably not going to make the playoffs. And the third time we talked to you, we talked about, wow, the Devils had a resurgence and still got the guy that they wanted in the draft at fourth. Then we talked to you and we previewed the season. Now the sixth time we're talking to you, and the Devils are going to play in the Stanley Cup Finals just one hockey season after what was pretty much a disaster last season. How did they do it? Well, I think you could look back and see that they made the wrong coaching choice, and, and Lou Lamarillo has said as much that, you know, John McClain wasn't the right guy. Uh, he wasn't ready to be a head coach in the NHL. And the hole that they dug for themselves was uh, too large to get out of. And then they hired the right guy. They hired the right guy in Pete DeBoer, um, <clears throat> who was able to kind of take the foundation of this team, uh, this defensive thing that's, you know, been, been a part of the Devils for the last 20 years, and augment it, you know, kind of bring it into the the new NHL in a way that other coaches haven't been able to since the lockout for the Devils. So on top of this defensive play and these fundamentals that they have, they have this incredible aggressive forecheck that has completely transformed the, the way they approach the games. I mean, you know, to see the Devils uh, forechecking three guys in the offensive zone with less than two minutes to go in a game and a one-goal lead, it's unheard of, uh, yet that's what they do. So... For the personnel that they have and uh, for the, the, the era that we're in in the NHL, DeBoer was the perfect guy. And then the other thing that changed is that Verdor, whether it's because of some new pads, whether it's because of a, a change in, in, in his style, or, or whether it's because DeBoer challenged him by pulling him in Game 3 of the uh, Panthers series, whatever it is, he's playing the best goaltending he's played in the playoffs and maybe since the last cup in 2003. So... 
combination of a couple things, and all of a sudden they're uh, back in the cup final. Let's talk for a second about the series versus the Rangers because they had that incredible series in 94, and I think there's a couple of comparisons that could be made between the two, but I think what was interesting most about this series is it seems like there was a couple games in there where the Devils were the better team and the Rangers won the game. And I felt like in Game 5 especially that maybe you know outside of the start that for the most part the Rangers were the better team, the Devils won. And I felt like for a lot of Game 6 that the Rangers were maybe the better team and the Devils won. What is it about this Devils team maybe and, and maybe using the last round as an, as an example that allows them to maybe be outplayed at times but still win in the end. I mean, you mentioned it kind of how they're not your older brother's devils in the sense that this team can score a lot of goals, right? Right, for sure. And, and there's a resiliency and a belief that they can get back into any game um, and a belief that it's just a matter of time before they score. And, and having guys that are gamers like Henrique, like Kovalchuk, like Parise, guys that have, uh, you know, time and time again for this team come through in the clutch has certainly helped. The Rangers series was, was, was weird in that sense, you know, like, um, you know, they've, they had really, really great games, but the Rangers were able to counterpunch and, uh, and have Lundqvist close the door late in games. And then in five and six, for whatever reason, the Rangers were able to carry play, but they weren't able to close out the Devils, and uh, they won both of those games. So, I don't know, it's, it, it's a belief that, that they're never out of games, and, and I think that what they were able to do in the Florida series, winning game six and seven in overtime like they did really kind of laid a foundation for for not really believing that they're ever going to be out of a game or a series going forward you know the devils were the sixth seed and you know but really they had a better regular season than maybe some six seeds because you look at they played in probably the toughest division in hockey with the flyers and the penguins and the rangers finishing ahead of them but they were able to start with new jersey or excuse me, start with Florida, and they, they won that in double overtime of Game 7, a much more exciting series than I think I thought initially. Um, but do you think that because they were a little bit of a lower seed that they were able to maybe play into the, you know, nobody believes in us thing that is always so powerful in sports and maybe use that uh, to win a couple rounds and then to enter the, the series against the Rangers as underdogs? And, and I think there were some people who, you know, even going into Game 6, we're like, oh, well, Messier did this in 94, so the Rangers are going to do it again, and then they'll win it in 7 at home because that's what they've been doing all playoffs. seems like nobody believed the Devils would be in the Cup, but now here they are. Did they use that a little bit to their advantage? Sure, and that's always kind of been the way that they've excelled. Um, playing with a chip on their shoulder, playing in the shadow of the Rangers, being underestimated. I mean, I think without question... It helped them out, and it specifically helped them out in the Flyers series, where the Flyers went up one nothing in that series on them. They went up one nothing in Game Two, in a game where Kovalchuk didn't play because he was injured. And I mean, I'll I'll say until the end of the playoffs, I think they punched the clock. I think they thought that this thing was in the bag, based on how well they played against Pittsburgh, and then the Devils come back and win that game, and then they didn't look back. So, uh, if anything, the the underdog uh, aspect, characterization, whatever you want to call it for the Devils, I think really helped them out specifically in that second-round series against the Flyers. You know, you mentioned Kovalchuk, and the Devils have had been criticized for the contract that has given Kovalchuk. Uh, there's a beat writer for the Sabres named Mike Harrington who was notoriously against that contract, and finally, this last week, said, I have to go against what I said because 
you know, if you can make the cup final, that contract is worth it. Do you think that uh, by making the, the, the cup final, Kovalchuk has done enough to validate the contract, or do you think he no. needs to win the cup final? No way. I mean, it, it's... <laughs> Uh, you, you could validate them bringing him back, but I mean, even if you if if they win the cup this year and then they don't, they lose Parise and they don't win a cup for the next you know thirteen years, how could you possibly say the contract was validated? You know what I mean? It's like, right. yeah, bringing him back has has worked out, and there's no question that that Kovalchuk's become a better player than he's ever been by virtue of playing for the Devils. I mean, whether it's Lemaire. Or the system that let that Lomarillo is, uh, you know, preaches whatever it is, he's a better player than he was in Atlanta. Um, but by no means can you judge that contract based on on one year. I mean, it's it, it's a long term deal with a with a relatively high cap hit, and uh, and you have to see what are the repercussions there are for that that salary. And, and I mean, you know, we're, to judge that contract in a year where both Parise and Kovalchuk are on the roster. Um, and then not waiting to see what this team looks like if Parise leaves because they can't afford him, um, whether it's because of the, the team's own finances or because they, don't, can't, they can't give him a, a higher cap hit than the one Kovalchuk has, which you know he'll ask for. I just think it's really, really short-sighted to kind of say the contract's successful. I think what you just, what you just described there, or, or maybe illustrated, is the difference between someone who has fouled a team that has won three Stanley Cups <laughs> versus someone who fouls a team who has never won one. If you're talking about a journalist in Buffalo who's covered the team since the 70s, he, he, in his mind, any contract would be worth it that would win the Sabres a cup no matter what it was. You see what well, I mean? I, and then if you look at the other side of that, some, a team who's already won three cups and is used to competing at that level, that's not how you judge a contract. Well, I can't, I mean, I can't speak for Mike, but I mean, for, for the Devils, they, for the last 20 years, have been able to main, you know, retain talent with, with salaries that were lower than market value. They've been a, a real forward-thinking team insofar as you know, young players drafting well, finding players in, in all sorts of corners of the earth, like Rafalski and John Madden. Um, they've they've been a team that's been managed impeccably, and uh, and so when you have that, you you don't necessarily judge a contract or judge a transaction until you see where the other dominoes fall. You know, so it's like the you know Niedermeyer leaving was terrible for this team for a while, and and Rafalski leaving was terrible for this team for a while, um, but it, you know it may have opened up some other doors to to bring on some guys that might not have been here otherwise. It's it's one of those things we have to kind of take a step back and, and see where things fall. But like, and that's the reason why I think the GM of the year award is just a joke because like they they give it to a GM based on like one year or one trade deadline or one summer of work, um, and it's impossible to know how these things are going to work out until you take a a good look, you know, five years down the line. Let's talk about the Kings for a second. You know, the Kings have had an unbelievable run to the Cup Finals. They've only lost two Game 4s in the first three rounds. They're undefeated on the road still. Uh, they were an 8 seed, but uh, uh, maybe like the Devils, they're one of the better, Devils being one of the better 6 seeds. I think the Kings are maybe one of the better 8 seeds in recent time. The, the Kings couldn't score goals all season long. What do you think clicked for them when the playoffs started that has allowed them to go on this just hellish run? through the Western Conference and into the Stanley Cup Finals? Well, it's not even necessarily when the playoffs started. I mean, I think they only had like seven regulation losses since the Jeff Carter trade, um, which really helped them out. But, you know, it, it, I think full credit probably goes to Daryl Sutter 
in the sense that he, much like DeBoer took the defensive foundation that was already there for the Devils and, and built on it, I think he took the, the, the uh, defensive foundation that was there thanks to Terry Murray and built on it. Murray didn't really know how to crack this team offensively. You know, he couldn't figure out how to, uh, to let them loose in the offensive zone and still have them be responsible defensively. Sutter found a way, and Sutter, you know, let these guys loose, and they play the same kind of aggressive forecheck that the Devils have. They like to set the tempo and uh, and found the right line combinations. And, you know, Kopitar, Brown, and Williams is great. Uh, you know, the Richards-Carter duo, once Carter came aboard, has been very good. And then, of course, down the lineup, they've been getting offensive contributions from guys like Dwight King and, you know, who the hell knew uh, that was going to happen. So I think all this credit goes to Sutter for finally figuring out a way to get this team to score, and, and their offense in the postseason has been has been definitely better than it was for the majority of the regular season. Kind of interesting that both teams in the Cup this year, uh, and during this conversation, we've looked back to coaching changes as being maybe key moments for them that have propelled them to this, this point. Yeah, and sometimes you know it's a different voice. Sometimes it's a guy who just knows how to use the assets better. And uh, and sometimes it's a guy who just knows how to uh, you know do something different philosophically. I think in the case of both DeBoer and, and Sutter, it's also uh, been a communication thing. You know, you know DeBoer, according to Marty Brodeur, DeBoer has been one of the more uh, open and communicative coaches that they've had. They have a they have a, a, a environment in the locker room where they can kind of speak freely if somebody screws up. I mean, there's accountability. But there's also an honesty, and there's not politics involved, and, and I think it's been sort of a refreshing thing for this team. And then in Los Angeles, Sutter is a guy who, you know, puts the pieces in place, puts the faith in the players, is uh, is willing to support you when you do something well, but is also willing to scare the crap out of you if you don't do something well. And I think for guys like Drew Doughty and, and other players that might have been skating by under Terry Murray, uh, Sutter's been able to come in. And, and not only, you know, tear them down when they don't play well, but also build them up when they do. When you look at this series and, and you think about Kings versus Devils and, and you try to handicap this, during the Rangers series, it seemed like one key for the Devils was to get ahead. If they could get that first goal, make the Rangers play from behind, it, it totally changed the game. What do you think the key for the Devils, or even if you want to take this from the Kings' point of view, or if you want to do both, what is the key for these teams in terms of starting and playing the games that can give them an edge and ultimately maybe win the series? Well, like I said earlier, I mean the Devils have been adept at, at, at you know taking a punch and then coming back and winning a game. So it's it's tough to say that establishing tempo is going to be the the key to the series if the Devils can come back and win a game even when they're being outplayed. But that said, I think the Devils play remarkably better. Uh, when they're on the forecheck, when they're aggressive, when they can set up in the offensive zone and, and, and control the tempo. And I think the real battle is going to be whether they can do that against the Kings team that I think is very responsible defensively up front and in the back is physical, big, veteran with guys like Scuderi and, and Mitchell um, and, and Green and guys like that that I think are going to be able to really um, keep the Devils from establishing much in the offensive zone. So... Um, for me, especially with, with the Devils having home ice, it's going to be a, a case of whether or not they get the uh, tempo that they want, they get the, uh, the puck control that they want, or if the Kings are going to be the ones that dictate terms to the Devils, much like they did the uh, Coyotes in the Western Conference Final. You know, I'd be really interesting to see how the Kings would react if they lost a game one, you know, losing the first road game of the playoffs and, and for the first time being behind in a series. It might be interesting to see how that kind of how they react to that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you ask them, they probably think that it's it's going to happen eventually. <laughs> like they're not going to finish the entire postseason without taking a, a loss on the road, so they might rationalize it like that. But you know, the, the one advantage I think they have in so far as coaching is the fact that Sutter's been there. You know, he was there with the 2004 Flames. There's a lot of similarities between this team and that team, and and I think having a voice like that in the room where and and you know they've got other guys like Skidaria that have been there too, but. You know, to have some guys that have experience and, and, and have been through this before, I think it's going to be invaluable to a team that, frankly, has had a pretty you know, easy trip, I think, through this thing. We know who the stars are in this series uh, for both teams, really. Is there a guy on either team that's kind of fine under the radar that you can think can make a real impact in this series? Well, Ryan Carter's been incredible for the Devils. I mean, he, he's a great story in the sense that uh, he's been waived like a thousand times, and, and he was a, a good foot soldier for DeBoer in Florida. DeBoer kind of uh, politics to get him into New Jersey when he became available, and they picked him up off of waivers. And he's just he's been the, the, the engine, I think, along with Steven Gianza for that fourth line for the Devils that's provided a surprising amount of offense. They're kind of like the crash line back in 95. They've, they've been a, a checking line that's been able to change momentum in a game but also put up some, um, some goals on the board, too. And for the Kings, I mean, it's the same story. Their fourth line has been tremendous. Dwight King, Trevor Lewis, guys like that have been, have been invaluable. And uh, it could come down to the grunts. I mean, the top two lines for these teams potentially could face off. You know, the Kopitar line, the, the, the Richards line versus whatever line they put Kovalchuk on, and then Parise Zajac. They, they could be a head-to-head battle. And then it's a matter of whether or not the grunts, the David Clarksons of the world and guys like that are going to be the ones that turn the series. Uh, the Sportscasters is here with uh, Greg Wyshynski from the Puck Daddy blog on Yahoo Sports. You can find him at Wyshynski on Twitter. You guys had a really interesting post on the blog about a week and a half ago or so about well, kind of looking ahead to the potential Rangers versus Kings matchup and the impact that it might have on TV. You guys kind of wondered if, if people were maybe overstating the impact that it would have for the league. I wonder when you look at this matchup of Kings and Devils and the potential to have five games on uh, national TV in the U.S., on NBC. What do you think this series can do for the United States and hockey and its popularity? Well, I think a lot of it depends. Well, I, I mean, I don't think it's going to necessarily... It might, it might mean something to Los Angeles if they, if they win, but I, I think the last few Stanley Cup finals have had more of a cultural, cultural impact in the sense of Detroit versus uh, uh, Pittsburgh twice, and then, and then uh, you know Boston reclaiming uh, its hockey heritage with that win, and then obviously Chicago-Philly was just enormous. So I think L.A. could get a real boost from this. Um, and nationally, I don't know how it's going to play. I mean, for the last 20 years, casual fans have been conditioned to not watch Devils hockey. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of weird that all of a sudden it's like, hey, no, no, seriously, they're exciting now, um, when the media has clearly you know, painted them in a, in a, with a different narrative for, for a very long time. It's going to matter about gameplay. It's going to matter about what happens within the series. I mean, the, the fact is that Boston-Vancouver looked like it could be a, a competitive series but really took a turn when the Nathan Horton thing happened. And, and then all of a sudden that series became a lot more dramatic and then went to seven. So I think a lot of it depends on what happens within the series. The Devils typically deliver a pretty good number, and there is clearly a buzz in Los Angeles about this Kings team, especially with all the basketball teams being done. So um, I think the ratings from California should be pretty strong, and then it's just a matter of, of uh, what happens nationally in some cities that may not necessarily care about either team, whether they tune in. You know, one last, one last thing about the coverage. You know, uh, both teams have 
uh, captains that were born in the United States. Uh, Dustin Brown was born in Ithaca, Prezi, Minnesota. Um, when the networks decide to uh, kind of focus this, focus on certain things in the series to try to sell it, do you think they'd be wise to try to sell that angle of the U.S. captains? And do you think that Parise and Brown can kind of have an impact that way? It could. I mean, you know, it, it's it's tough for the for NBC or anybody to market this thing because, you know, Kovalchuk I think is a star, but he's not a, a star on the level of like a Crosby or an Ovechkin. Brodeur is probably the most well-known name on the team, but nobody knows how to pr- successfully market defense. And then the Kings have some pretty familiar names, but nobody that's on a star level. I mean, it's not exactly Gretzky and Robitaille on that team. So from a marketing standpoint, it's, it's a bit of a tough sell. Um, it's, it's much easier if you just go L.A. versus New York and, and go from there. When it's L.A. versus New Jersey, it becomes kind of a weirder sell. So... Uh, like I said, I, I think as the series goes on, we'll be able to really kind of discern who they might put out front. You know, if Dustin Brown continues to do what he does, or if Parise continues to do what he does, maybe they focus on them. Um, but the U.S.-born aspect of it's a tough sell. It's, it's tough to say, hey, watch, come and watch the American captains when, uh, you know, the other two guys that you're going to be watching are named Kovalchuk and Kopitar. <laughs> Very good point. Hey, just a real quick side thing. Uh, I didn't think he was in the mix, but I, I think it was either a tweet or on your blog that uh, Talinder has a chance to maybe be in this series. you think we'll see him at all? Yeah, he's been medically cleared. And, uh, I mean, he hasn't seen action in, in a really, really long time, so I don't know if they'll put him in or not. I think it probably depends on what the situations are. You know, the... DeBoer has done a very good job moving personnel in and out, scratching Peter Sikora in favor of Josephson, uh, scratching Larson after he scored a big goal in Philly, uh, against Philly rather, for Peter Harold. He's done some nice little things personnel-wise. Uh, just the, the, the fact that Talinder's healthy doesn't necessarily mean he'll be back in, but, I mean, he's a, he's a veteran hand that's going to be pretty good to have in reserve. All right, uh, again, it's, it's the Puck Daddy, Greg Wyshynski. You can find him at Wyshynski. The podcast is going every day. You can listen to it on yahoosports.com. Uh, anything else that we should know kind of about like what the Puck Daddy blog or, and the podcast is going to be doing maybe out of the ordinary because it's the cup? No, we're, 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 profi- we're previewing every facet of the series, be it you know, offense, you know, forwards, defensemen, captains, Celebrity fans, home ice. We, we are previewing every facet of the series over the next three days. We'll do chats for every game. Uh, myself and Leahy will be at the games in Jersey. Uh, we have a small army of Yahoo Sports staffers that will be over at the games in Los Angeles. Our, our offices are in Santa Monica, so it's kind of you know, geographically uh, nice that the, this whole thing worked out the way it did. So we'll, we'll have this whole thing covered from, from top to bottom, and uh, it'll be a good time. Prediction? Uh, Kings in seven. I, I like the idea of the Kings winning this thing on the road. I think there'll be a poetry to it. And uh, I just think they're the better, the better team a little bit. Um, the way they're playing, uh, Sutter's got them playing really well. And uh, they, they provide some matchup problems to the Devils, especially on the defensive end. I think their, their blue line has been really stout. And I can't see Jonathan Quick struggling down uh, late in a series like, like Lundquist did a little bit. Thanks for doing this, Greg. We really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Thanks for having me back. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right, we want to thank the Puck Daddy for being on the show. Big week for Puck Daddy. His team is in the Stanley Cup Finals. You know, I was telling some people, I've seen my favorite hockey team 
score an overtime game-winning goal at home at Game 6 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Right. Only problem was they were down 3-2, not up 3-2 at the time. That's true. And then they went on to Jay McKee got a staff staff infection, and then Brian Campbell shot the puck over the glass, and then stupid Rory Fitzpatrick didn't know the puck was in his feet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Carolina stole our cup. Anyway, book club, book of the month update. The month of May was insane for books. Uh, we had four and a half, basically, book club books of the month. And I'm going to go through them one more time. Uh, all four authors joined us this month, um, which is great. Sometimes we have one book club book of the month. Uh, actually, the, just the month before, we had two, and one of the authors blew us off. Right. Hank Haney. Hank Haney. <laughs> Stupid Hank. All right. So I'm going to go through these one more time. First one. We're going to talk more about this book in a minute, uh, but it's called like Any Normal Day. First uh, book by Mark Cram Jr., who's been a sports writer for almost 30 years. And uh, like Any Normal Day is a tough book, and we're going to interview Mark in a second about it. It's basically to describe it in one minute or one sentence without describing it too much because we're going to do a 20-minute interview on it in a second. It's basically about a kid who played high school football and broke his neck and eventually went to Dr. Jack Kevorkian to commit suicide. Right. So it's different than a lot of the books that we have in the book club book of the month. Sure. But a great read by a great author and one of the great sports writers of all time. Mark has been in the best American sports writing for his work six times. Wow. So one of the great sports writers out there. I have yet to be in there. I haven't been in it yet either. Yeah. All right. uh, Second book. Club Book of the Month for May is One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach in a Magical Baseball Season by Chris Ballard from SI. Uh, we had Chris on a couple weeks ago to talk to, talk to us about this book and also a column that he did on Tim Duncan. Uh, so that must have been episode number, season two, episode 19. If you want to hear an interview with Chris Ballard, uh, again, his book is One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach in a Magical Baseball Season. Uh, also on that season two episode nineteen podcast was John Smoltz, who joined us to talk about his book starting and closing. He wrote with uh, Don Yeager was the writer. Uh, Smoltz is one of my all time favorite baseball players. Is a big fan of this nineties Braves team, and it was a great interview with John. He was very candid about some stuff and kind of a Braves note. Uh, if you're with us from the beginning, you may have once read the Twitter interview that I did with Dave Justice right. on our our blog, sportscasters.blogspot.com, our, our, our blog spot. And Justice said, you did it my way, meaning we'll a Twitter interview. interview. I'll be on the podcast next time. Then he kind of disappeared from Twitter for a while. His Twitter ended up being inactive and gone. But he's back on Twitter, and we're talking to him, and Dave Justice should be on the show probably sometime in June, I'd imagine. So yeah, look, awesome. look forward to that. I know I am. All right. The first of the four books that we featured is an interview with Frank DeFord. We did that earlier in the month of May. Uh, the book is called Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer, the memoir of the great Frank DeFord, uh, one of the members of the Mount Rushmore of sports writing, in my <laughs> opinion. And uh, Overtime is, is great. Uh, I'm done with Overtime, finally. It was a great read. Frank DeFord, great writer. So the books are Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer by Frank DeFord. He was on episode season two, episode 17. Like, yeah. 
uh, John Smoltz, starting and closing, season two, episode 19. Chris Ballard, One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, A Magical Baseball Season, season two, episode 19. And Mark Cram Jr. is like any normal day. We're going to talk to Mark right after this. I said it was four and a half, and the reason it's four and a half, I want to mention one more time, uh, beautiful coffee table style book, Behind the Moves, NHL general managers tell how winners are built. Jason Ferris is the name of the guy who put this book together. It's a beautiful book, numbered, uh, signed by Neil Smith, and he was kind enough to send this to us. The only place you can buy this book is at NHLGMs.com, NHLGMS.com. So if you're interested in that book, I wanted to mention that one more time. I am going to write a review of the book that you can find on the blog during the Stanley Cup Finals, www.thesportscasters.blogspot.com. So, a lot of books. Those are the books from the month of May. We got all the authors on for you this month. What's next? Well, this is what's next. I have one book for June and one book for July picked out. Already worked it out with both authors. So both are going to come on. Figure in the summertime, we don't want to spend the month reading four books. <laughs> One book is plenty. And the book club book of the month for June is The Last Natural, Bryce Harper's Big Gamble in Sin City and the Greatest Amateur Season Ever by Rob Meech. Uh, I'm fascinated by Harper. I mentioned it earlier in the podcast. Yep. Uh, I can't wait to, get, wait to get this book in the mail and to read it, and I can't wait to talk to Rob later in June. So we'll be talking about that book. More and more, and we'll tell you more about it on the podcast this week. And just as a brief heads up, the book club book of the month for July is going to be Dream Team, How Magic, Michael, Larry, Charles, and the Greatest Team of All Time Conquered the World and Changed the Game of Basketball Forever. That's by SI writer and legend Jack McCollum. Spoken with Jack. Jack's going to be on the podcast. I'm thrilled. Can't wait to have him and can't wait to read Dream Team, which comes out June 10th or July 10th. Uh, So, uh, that book's a, a ways away, but I wanted to mention it. And the Bryce Harper book is available now. Uh, you can get that in bookstores or in ebook formats. Uh, that's the book club book of the month for June, The Last Natural, Bryce Harper, it's Big Gamble in Sin City, and The Greatest Amateur Season Ever by Rob Meech, and we'll talk to Rob soon. So that's the book club update for today. Let's take a break, come back with Mark Cram Jr. so we can talk a little bit more about Like Any Normal Day. <laughs> Our next guest is from Baltimore, Maryland, and is a graduate of the University of Maryland College Park. He's a senior writer for the Philadelphia Daily News and has recently released his first book titled Like Any Normal Day. His work has appeared in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology six times and has earned top honors by the Associated Press Sports Editors. He's making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the very talented Mark Cram Jr. How are you doing today? Hi, Steve. How are you today? Very excited. Very excited to have you on. We've been talking about this book for about a month now, and um, it's different. It's a different book, and, and I guess we'll get to that in a second. But sure. fir- first thing I want to ask you is, you've been in this business, you've been around this business your whole life, you've been in the business for a long time, and this is the first book that you've written. Why was now the time to do this? Well, I've, as you say, I have been uh, in the business for 30 years, um, 
and I've been writing for I've been waiting for the right idea, uh, something that uh, was uh, really spoke to me, you know, kind of uh, something that was really uh, meaningful uh, to me. And uh, this story, although it was uh, a quiet story, uh, really did. You know, it's you know I've covered uh, the big events in sports. I've covered the big personalities in sports. But nothing seemed to really, to me, have the drama of this uh, little, you know, story that was taking place uh, in a little corner in um, southeastern Pennsylvania, a small suburb. Uh, these stories, these stories that kind of exist in the margins of sports, have always appealed to me, and this one in particular, because I really, uh, I really felt that there was quite a bit to say through this story about who we are as uh, human beings. Have you uh, flirted with some other ideas in the past? Have you ever been close, or was this the first time that you really said, you know what, this is it? Well, you know, uh, the idea of doing a book is it was kind of a daunting task uh, in many ways. Uh, uh, even if you were to do, uh, you know, kind of an average book, it's quite a bit of work. Um, so, you know, I was always scouting ideas and, and, and thinking about things and thinking about whether they could... Uh, you know, be stretched into uh, a nonfiction narrative, which is, you know, which I was trying to develop myself as a nonfiction narrative writer. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I guess I floated around a proposal here and there over the years, but none of them with real conviction. You know, this is the story I wanted to do. This story was a labor of love to me, and I think all good books are a labor of love. And, uh, you know, I put everything I had into it. You know, like I said, it's a little different for us, and it's been a different it's been a different experience in our book club because, you know, if we do a book like Sweetness, for example, it's about Walter Payton. It's a straightforward Walter Payton biography. You know, mm -hmm. if we if we do a book like Scorecasting, which we had a lot of fun with, you know, that mm -hmm. that's a book about manipulating stats and numbers. But this book, to me, it just it's beyond sports. Sports is kind of a uh, sports is a backdrop. This is it's about way, way more than that. Um, what What are your thoughts about you know how how have you been able to sell this in terms of people expect probably a, a straight sports book from someone who's a sports writer, but this is so much more than that. Has it been interesting for you? Like it's been interesting for us? Just to, well, I hope it's been people? interesting for for everyone. Um, uh, you're correct in so far as saying that it's not strictly a sports book per se. Uh, in fact, there are only two chapters which deal heavily with sports, uh, if you get right down to it. Um, uh, you know, I think the cover tells the story in many ways, uh, part of the story. You see two boys, two brothers, in their baseball uniforms heading off to a Little League game. A uh, typical summer day. Uh, those boys, either one of them, either one of them could be your brother. Uh, either one could be your son. Um, you know, so you know, and it catches them at a time in their life uh, with their whole future stretching out before them. And who could possibly know that the older boy would break his neck in a high school football game? And who could possibly know that that younger boy, uh, years later? would deliver him in the hands of Dr. Kevorkian. Uh, you know, it's just uh, human drama 
with the uh, volume hot, uh, pumped up high. Um, and it's so it touches on many, many different areas. It's not a sports book per se. It's not a Kevorkian book per se. But it's a story that really touches, you know, really gets us to examine who we are as human beings, what our duty is to one another as human beings. I mean, uh, you know, uh, what happens when you're at the end of your rope, uh, as Buddy was? Who can you call on? Where can you go? Uh, and uh, it's a heavy subject, but it's a he- you know, it, but this is a heavy set of circumstances. And the truth of the matter is that you know, this any one of us are just uh, an accident away, a moment away from being in the very position that these these characters are in. Uh, you don't have to know Buddy Miley and Jimmy Miley to to relate to this story because some some aspect of this is uh, uh, of their story is occurring in each of our lives in some fashion. You know, you is kinda, that fair to say? Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And, you know, you kind of brought us into the heart of what this book is. And, you know, it's a really interesting time for it to come out, um, you know, based on everything that has happened in the football off, the professional football offseason with the, the issue of bounties and the issue of player safeties and the tragic passing of Junior Seau and this new issue that it seems to be coming up of you know, would you let your son play football? And this family let their son play football, and tragically he was injured on the field, and ultimately it led to him deciding to take his life. Uh, maybe not all that different from the Junior Seau story, uh, different injuries maybe, and, and we haven't exactly confirmed why Junior Seau t- taken his life. We have our assumptions. But mm-hmm. what, have you, what have been your thoughts as the author of this book, seeing the offseason that the NFL has had kind of play out? Well, you know, there's a great movement to sort of uh, uh, make the game, quote-unquote, more safe. Uh, it's impossible to do that. Uh, you know, I've, for years I've heard the, uh, the debate between boxing and football, that boxing, uh, the intent is to damage, uh, and the intent is to maim, and that whereas in football the intent is to you know, to score points, and, and it's a whole different intention entirely. You know, I've always thought of that as a consoling fiction, you know, for, for, for football fans. Because as we know, anyone that watches, you know, the carnage that unfolds on the football field every Sunday and on every Saturday in, in college and every Friday in, uh, in, in high school, anyone that knows that the intent is absolutely to... Uh, to uh, basically, while not um, perhaps break someone's neck per se, but it is to incapacitate them. Uh, and uh, the truth of the matter is, it goes back to what George Hallis, the old Bears uh, owner, once said: "A good player becomes less good the harder you hit them." Hallis said that 60 years ago or more. It hasn't changed a bit since. Uh, the only difference is that the players have gotten bigger, faster, and more lethal. The equipment gives them this sense of safety that really doesn't exist. So um, it's my feeling is that, that, that football is in a very tough spot. In fact, it's more dangerous than boxing in my view because in boxing you have one person that's trying to knock your head off. In football you have 11 other players trying to knock your head off. 
I mean, have you thought of that? <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. Yeah, and you know, I'm looking. I'm just, you know, I got the book in my hand, and I'm looking at this page where you have uh, a bunch of clippings from the newspapers about the about the injury. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, these these clippings they look old, but this happens all, still happens all the time. Like you know, you were saying, it could be anyone's brother. This could be any town's newspaper where a story like this comes in. And I, I wonder when you, when you were doing the book, preparing for the book. Did you research some of the other experiences that some of the other people who have been injured? Uh, not in well, not in any great depth, Steve. But I knew that they were out there I mean, because we see them every year, right? Yeah, we used to have one in Buffalo the, what, here. What, sorry, we had one in Buffalo on opening day a few years ago with Kevin Everett. You know, so yep. it's something that happened close to my community. Right, but there's many of these injuries that occur on sort of anonymous high school fields that we never hear about. We never hear about. We hear about Buddy Miley because. The press paid some attention to him, and I came along and did a book. But if I hadn't done a book, no one would remember him. He would be lost to time. My point is that these these injuries, uh, you know, happen on a regular basis. They happen every year. And what happens is that there's some brief attention paid, perhaps locally. Some beef and beers are raised, Some, you know, insofar as uh, raising some funds. But then they're forgotten. These people are casualties of the sport, and they're forgotten. And uh, my feeling is that attention must be paid uh, to to really, um, uh, I'm looking at one case, but there are cases scattered all across the country of people who have who are basically living in, in, in this quiet desperation. You know, but I would say, I would say this about this too. Not only what we also see in this book and in all these cases is a degree of heroism. And by that I mean it, in Buddy's case, it re- you really saw his injury, how it brought out the good in people, how it brought out their charitable side, how they would go to lengths to try to ease Buddy's uh, pain in whatever way they can to comfort him. And we do see that. We see that as a basic uh, part of human nature. And uh, that, to me, is very uplifting. I found that to be uplifting. Um, so, you know, but these stories go untold. Uh, and uh, because they're basically, uh, uh, they don't involve celebrities or they don't involve pros or, uh, for whatever reason, the mainstream media doesn't, doesn't uh, attach itself to it. But these stories are our stories. These are our stories. And they happen in every every town in America in one way or another. So kind of one aspect of this book is that there's this boy who plays high school football and gets injured and has a terrible neck injury. And like you said, uh, there's parts of the book that are about the good in other people. But then the, the other kind of part of this book and is him deciding that he couldn't take it anymore and uh, going to the very famous Dr. Jack Kevorkian and uh, having an assisted assisted suicide, and you mentioned to me earlier off the air that it's going to be uh, the one-year anniversary of uh, Dr. Kevorkian's death. I wonder if before you did this book, you had one opinion on Dr. Kevorkian, and if after you did this book, if you had another, and maybe what those opinions were and how they may have changed. Well, uh, actually, no. I, uh, my opinion didn't change dramatically about Kevorkian. Um, uh, only insofar as this, uh, 
you know, Jack of Orkian was a zealot, and but zealots have their purpose. They bring attention to an issue. Uh, they shine a light on it, and Jack certainly did that. Uh, but I think a year after his death, I think it's time for the nation to really embrace a more sober discussion of end-of-life issues. I, I think that these are issues that touch every one of us, each of our families, and uh, and I think that you know now that Jack has stepped away from the stage, uh, uh, we uh, we should, as a nation, um, you know, look at this in a very serious way. How you know uh, one thing in the book that was really hard for me. You know, I, I have two younger brothers, and um, we're really close brothers, and. I was trying to put myself in the shoe of Buddy's brother and, and think, sure. think about what I, what I would have done, how I would have handled this. And and I, I think it's one of those things you really can't come to a conclusion. You, you, it's, it's, it's the ultimate reminder not to judge other people because how can you judge someone unless you walk the mile in their shoes? And, and I, I guess I wonder, you know, since this book has come out and this story has been told more and more, uh, what is the status of, of Buddy's brother, and how is he coping with the decision that he came to? Well, you know, Buddy ha- Buddy's brother Jimmy has Jimmy, had yeah. a lot of ups and downs with it. Uh, to some extent, uh, talking about it with me and, and doing the book uh, uh, has been helpful. In other ways, it's been, you know, painful in that it revisits some very sensitive issues. But you're correct in saying that, uh, you know, uh, None of us know what we would do if our brother or our sister or our parent came to us and wanted, you know, us to assist them in this, you know, this final act. Uh, and uh, I, I think that, you know, one of the aims of this book is that I would like, I wanted people to read it in one or two or three sittings and really have an emotional experience with it. And, you know, talk to someone, talk to a loved one, you know, talk about, you know, you know, not just that piece of it, but, you know, talk about life, you know, talk about, uh, you know, there's many things that sort of intersect through this book. You know, it's a kind of a meditation on long marriages, if you look at it in a certain way. You know, it's a meditation on, you know, uh, um, you know, duty, as I said earlier. Uh, so that's what I found. I, I, I'm, I'm really getting the, the sense from readers is that, you know, uh, they put the book down, but the book doesn't leave them. You know, it stays with them, and that's what my aim was. Uh, because think of it, you know, Buddy went to several people, more than a few people, to ask him to take them to Kevorkian, to take him to Kevorkian. None of them could. They all loved him to death. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't bring themselves to do it. It's that hard of a thing. So the sad piece of it for me was that, in fact, Buddy had to sort of sneak out of, you know, his home under kind of a cloak of secrecy and fly all the way to Michigan from Philadelphia to have his, you know, final wish, uh, wishes met, uh, and then be surrounded by strangers, you know, at the very end, uh, in a, in a rather, uh, you know, sterile hotel room. It was... It was rather, uh, that's a bit sad to me. You know, in your book, there's, uh, you reprinted a note that Jimmy wrote to Buddy, and it just simply says, Buddy, I'll get you there. And that's on one page in the book. And then on the next page, this chap- chapter 18 starts, and it says, Brothers. And th- th- that was the point where I, I had to put it down and, and walk away for a little bit. And 
um, that's where I really started to started to think and, and talk to my brothers about it. And you know, I, I guess I guess where I'm going with this is just uh, the book. The book is so powerful and so emotional, and um, so much of a story where you try to put yourself into it and and think what could you do because they're real events, real things that could happen in in anyone's lives. Um, and I wonder if a lot of people have, have shared with you their experiences and their opinions. Are people anxious to say, you know, this is what I would have done or, or this is what I would have done here? Or what, what has the response been? Like, what if, what if people told you? What if people wanted to talk to you about? Well, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's, it's not always an end-of-life issue. They, they'll pick out a character, say, you know, Buddy's father, Bert. Buddy had a very strained relationship with his father. His father was a a World War II vet and was part of this silent generation that came back from the war, um, you know, a fairly haunted man who's, you know, slipped back into, you know, um, uh, the uh, the ordinary life of raising a family in the suburbs. Uh, but he and Buddy were at odds uh, for as long as they, you know, knew each other. And, um, you know, so some, some people uh, want to talk to me about their fathers, um, a gentleman recently spent 45 minutes telling me all about his father uh, after reading the book. So it's, it, it, it really uh, touches a lot of different areas in people, which I find kind of fascinating. Uh, I'm not making any um, uh, judgments about what people should do. I'm just telling one man's story, one family story, and I'm letting people sort of take that wherever they want to. Um, but it's fascinating to me that most people that, or all the people that have contacted me have been, you know, um, they've had compassion for the Miley family and all the characters in the book, and they can very much see how their story could easily be their own story. It's so interesting to me that you, you mentioned that someone had come up to you and talked to you for 45 minutes about the relationship between Buddy and his father and then the relationship between himself and his father because you have a, a very, you have a, a lot of people know a lot about the relationship between you and your father. You wrote a very long piece about your father. Um, I, I think you originally wrote it for Sports Illustrated, but you ended up using it for something different. But uh, when you when you wrote this and... Um, and you wrote about the relationship between Buddy and his father. Did it bring back emotions for you and, and make you think of the relationship that you've had with your father, which is kind of, you know, it's just unique in the sense that it's it, it's a somewhat public relationship in a way, or part of it, anyway. Well, yeah, but Dad, Dad, who was a writer for Sports Illustrated for many years, covered Allie and Frazier uh, during, the, uh, during the 60s and 70s, all the big fights. Uh, you know, he was as... He was as talented a sports writer as I think the profession has ever seen. I don't think you'll get much argument from people about that. Um, you know, uh, he, my relationship with my father was not very similar to Buddy's relationship with, with his, uh, only in that, but to the extent that it is, it is that all father-son relationships are fraught with uh, tension. I think, uh, and, uh, you know, in some cases that tension, uh, you know, um, in the case of my dad, uh, we came to terms with that tension before he died 
in 2002. Uh, you know, he had just, you know, finished a book on Ali and Frazier called Ghost of Manila. And the last few years of Dad's life, we were really able to, you know, come to uh, to uh, terms about the issues that had emerged in our in our relationship. Sadly, in the case of Buddy and his father, um, you know, Buddy died in his early 40s. Uh, and, you know, and Buddy had an unusual life in the sense that in many ways time stopped for him when he was injured at age 17. You follow me? He yeah. was like everything that he would be in his life, all his aspirations, uh, all his dreams, uh, everything stopped in the middle of a football field on one play in one split second of horror, you know? He was supposed to go out on a date with a girl that he had met in school, a girl that he caught his eyes, Karen Shields. Uh, they were supposed to go out that night. He, she, uh, he never showed up. She found out on Monday that he was in the hospital with a broken neck near death. She started showing up to the uh, hospital every day. And over the course of the next several months, they fell in love. And um, at the end of the school year, she went with her family to Florida to live, and Buddy went on to his life. But their lives intersected over the next 23 and a half years. Every 10 years or so, they would find themselves back in each other's presence, and it would be like they were 17 again. It would be like they were back in that same bubble. And the truth of the matter is, two years before he contacted Kevorkian, um, Buddy hired a private investigator to find Karen, uh, because she basically dropped out of sight. And they found her working as a uh, in an emergency room at an Alabama hospital. They got back in touch, and once again, you know, that, that, that unlived piece of their, you know, relationship kind of came together again. And, in fact, uh, Karen was the last person that Buddy spoke to by phone from Michigan. So... You know, this story has these tragic overtones, and that is one of the most most uh, 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 the most the deepest tragedy because Karen felt like she could have done something, anything to have uh, to kept Buddy from his fate. You know. Yeah, the sportscasters are here with Mark Cram Jr., the author of a wonderful new book called "Like Any Normal Day." Uh, you can get the book anywhere books are sold and it's available in ebook formats as well. Uh, a couple more things. Um, we waited uh, almost 30 years for you to write your first book. Any thoughts on writing a second one? I do. Actually, I have another idea that I think is quite, uh, quite interesting. Um, and at some point along the line, down the future, although probably not the next one, I'd like to really do write something... Uh, uh, about uh, my father and his sports writing career, and and you know expand, forgive some sinner into into a book. But I'm not sure if that's something I want to do. You know, next next up, I do have an idea that I want to look at this summer and, and perhaps put together a proposal. But you know, this really, you know, doing this book really was a wonderful experience, and it really stretched myself creatively. I was able to stretch myself and and to uh, really examine life in a much, much deeper uh, 
and finer detail uh, than you can in any kind of long-form journalism piece. All right, uh, last, we'll, we'll have it be the last thing. Um, like, again, the book's called Like Any Normal Day. It's been one of our book club books of the month. We do have a copy to give away. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com if you're interested in getting a copy of the book. And I guess the last thing I wanted to, ans- to ask you is, uh, do you think that this book could has more legs, could be a, a screenplay and, and maybe a movie sometime? Is that something you'd be interested in seeing the story become more? Well, I um, sure. I uh, I think it's a it's a it's a it's highly cinematic uh, story. I think there's uh, great parts in it for young actors, great challenging parts. Um, I think in the hands of a, a of a talented screenwriter, it could be uh, a wonderful film. Um, um, you know, you know. I certainly uh, I certainly do think that. As far as I'm concerned, um, you know. Uh, just simply writing the book was uh, was enough for me, though. Basically, I I got out of this everything that I could possibly get out of it, emotionally and in, in, in any other way. So, if someone would like to come along and 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 develop it into a screenplay, I'd certainly embrace that. Uh, uh, but I don't need it uh, to fulfill, uh, you know, what what I wanted to get out of this project. Okay. Again, the author is Mark Cram Jr. Uh, it's his first appearance on on the Sportscasters. The book is called Like Any Normal Day. We do have a copy. If you're interested in getting a copy of the book, please email us at sportscasters at gmail.com, as we discussed earlier in the show. Uh, I really appreciate you doing this, Mr. Cram, and I, I felt like I, I owed it to you to basically just do an, a straight interview on the book, but I'd love to have you back another time, and we can talk sure. maybe a little bit about some of the other countless things that fascinate me about your career and your life and and all the things that you've written about in sports so hopefully we can do it again sometime please call anytime and and i'd love to do it thank you very much thanks steve bye-bye thank you all right i want to thank Mark Cram Jr. for being on the podcast today. Uh, Mark's one of the great sports writers of all time. And like I said at the end of the interview there, I kind of felt like I owed it to him to do that particular interview strictly about the book, which admittedly it's a tough book. And, you know, there's parts of that interview where where it was heavy, you know, and and I'm sorry about that, but uh, Mark is very passionate and he wrote a great book and I wanted to give him the proper amount of time to discuss it potentially get as many listeners as possible interested in it. But I promise that we'll have Mark on again in the future to talk about the wonderful piece that he wrote about his father, one of the famous, most famous pieces of sports journalism of all time. And we'll talk to him about what's been going on in the last 25 years where he's been covering the Philadelphia sports scene. So that's not going to be the last time Mark's on. We've already, I've already talked to him off the air about coming on again, and he's fully into it. Uh, so thank you, Mark, for making your first appearance. All right, before we get into our last interview of the day, I wanted to update our contest, which we announced last week. We're kind of clearing the bookshelf off a little bit for Father's Day. And next week, which will be our, I think the date is June 5th, will be uh, season two, episode number 22 of the podcast. Uh, is We're going to have Albert Chan, we're going to talk a little bit baseball, but we're also going to focus a lot of the book on kind of a year in the book club review 
so to speak. And in honor of that, we have a bunch of uh, books to give away. We announced last week that Sweetness by Jeff Perlman was our book club book of the month, book of the year. And Jeff's going to be on with us next week to talk about Sweetness. And that is one of the books that we have to give away, uh, as well as an autographed copy of Death to the BCS, which was given, us, given to us by Jeff, Jeff Passan, yep. who's going to join us in the month of June sometime, later in the month, though. Uh, so I want to thank Jeff and Jeff uh, for providing those books. And again, if you want to win a copy of those books or any books that I mentioned in this segment, you have to email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. We've gotten a bunch of responses already. Clearly, we're going to have more responses than books to give away. So it's going to be a contest in the sense that some people that emailed me aren't going to be able to win, Right. unfortunately. But Give me a list of the top three books I mentioned in this segment that you want, and we'll do the best we can to match up people with books. Uh, basically, the first name we pick out of the people who are eligible will get number one on their list, and we'll keep doing it that way until we don't have a match, and then we'll just give them the next book in the pile. Sure. Uh, like I said, we have Sweetness by Jeff Perlman, an autographed copy of Death to the BCS. Uh, we also have Plastic Hair and Plastic Grass by Dave Epstein, a funny ride through baseball in America in the swinging 70s. We have uh, Mark Cram Jr.'s Like Any Normal Day. Uh, we just talked to Mark on the podcast. Uh, we also have a paperback version of Those Guys Have All the Fun, Inside the World of ESPN by James Andrew Miller. James has been on the podcast twice to talk about that book. We also have Don't Put Me in Coach, My Incredible NCAA Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench by Mark Titus. Mark was on to talk to us about that book. And we have a copy of One Shot at Forever, A Small Town, An Unlikely Coach, and A Magical Baseball Season by Chris Ballard. So that means we have – oh, and we have The Ball by John Fox. And if you want to know more about The Ball by John Fox, wait one minute. We're going to have John on the podcast to talk about what The Ball is. So that means we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight books to give away. You said like any normal day too, right? Was that in the stack? Yep. Like okay. any normal day is in the stack. Oh, there it is. There it is. Uh, so we have eight books to give away. Looking forward to uh, giving them to you. Email us, sportscasters at gmail.com. If you need more information, you can tweet at me, at sports underscore casters. Uh, but we're going to give a bunch of books away. This month, and maybe you're going to keep them for yourself. Maybe you're going to give them away to your dad as a Father's Day gift. Whatever you want to do with them, once you get them, it's fine with me. Uh, but we're excited about this, and uh, hopefully you're one of the winners. So we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with John Fox, the author of The Ball, discovering the object of the game. And right off the top, we're going to make some ball jokes. We sure are. So we'll be right back. Our next guest is the head football coach of the Denver Broncos. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, our, our next guest is uh, the author of a great book called The Ball. And uh, as you heard, he is a graduate of Boston University. And his name is John Fox. And he's joining us on the Sportscasters today. How are you doing, John? I'm good, Steve. Uh, the the other John, otherwise known as the other John Fox, right? Right. Do you like when like are people like I can't believe the head coach of the Broncos wrote a book about the about balls? Do, do you yeah, get that they a lot? do. You know, I got I got to capitalize on that somehow. I haven't <laughs> figured it out yet, but must be a way. So, all right. So, do you get more of that, or do you get like you know 
third grade jokes, you know, about the fact that you have a book called The Ball? I have had, I, I've given a few readings, and, and I invariably have little quotes in there about balls, and it's always interesting to hear the snickers in the audience in these otherwise erudite little uh, bookstores. So uh, definitely plenty of third grade jokes. Well, did you see the, did you see, happen to see the last press conference that the Rangers coach gave? Um, no. Yeah, he, so he's, he, his team just goes out, you know, in game six of the conference finals to the Devils, and someone asked him a question about, you know, kind of the team going forward, and his comment was, is I really like our balls. <laughs> you know, and... and that's, it's, that's particularly interesting for a game that doesn't involve balls. Right, no, it does not. There's no balls <laughs> on the rink, so, or, or, you know what I mean? So, yeah, so, and, and when I heard that, and I, I, I seen people running with it, you know, to the way they were, I right away I thought of you, because there's only a few days before we would talk, and, and I thought, you know... Oh, you know, I, I'm sure I'm gonna have to ask him if he gets the same kind of thing. But um, oh yeah. Okay, so you've spent. We've kind of taken the last few years of your life and kind of trivialized it to a joke here in the beginning, and I'm sorry about that. But I know a lot of hard work ha- has gone in, and why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what the ball is and, and kind of the process between uh, turning the idea of the balls in the games that we watch and we play and we love into a book. Yeah, sure thing. Well, it all started with uh, my son, Aiden, who's a 12-year-old. When he was about seven, we were playing ball in the backyard, and, and he uh, asked me one of these you know, bizarre, out-of-left-field, literally, questions that seven-year-olds ask, which was, hey, Dad, why do we play ball anyway? And uh, you know, this is a kid who asked questions like, do we know any cannibals? Uh, <laughs> is there any chance we're Navajo? You know? <laughs> so He's he asked interesting question, questions. He's a random kid in the family, right? But but this one I thought you know um, so I'd done I'd done research for a number of years as an anthropologist in um, in Mesoamerica so Central America in the Maya area and I was an expert on uh, the Mayan ball game played for thousands of years in that area so when Aiden asked me that question I said well wow you know this is a, that's actually a pretty deep and interesting question I should go out and explore you know where all the games we play today came from and how do we come to play them and you know, why do we play this game and not some other game? And so that kind of set me off on this journey and, and turned into this book. You know, it's interesting because I, I look right on the back of the book and you have, in quotes, why do we play ball on the back? So I love <laughs> I, that. It, I try to be, yeah, just to make it easy on people. All right, I love that. So now the interesting, one of the interesting things about this book is, and it says it on the back, is that it's equal parts history and travelogue, you know, covering your journey to learn. Uh, about the different things, and it's full of different anecdotes. And I wonder, do you have a favorite, maybe one that you can share with our listeners that kind of would draw someone in who didn't know much about the book, kind of give them a a, a look at what to expect, you know, if they were... Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, one of my, uh, you know, one of my greatest adventures in covering this book was, uh, was a particularly cold uh, New Year's spent um, on tiny Isle of Orkney off the north coast of Scotland. And um, this is a place that, that you wouldn't find yourself, you know, you, know you, you would avoid it that time of year under any other circumstance. But on that island, they play a version of uh, football or, or rugby or whatever you want to call it that, that relates to the way the game was played about 500 years ago. And it's a thing called the Kirkwall Ba. Um, B-A. Um, and the Kirkwall Ba is, is 
probably one of the most incredible sporting events on the planet, also one of the least known, turns out. Um, so, so here's how it's played. Basically, twice a year, um, and this, this island is about you know, 20 miles across, uh, very traditional. Twice a year, just on Christmas and New Year's Day, um, one half of the town, which is called the Uppies because they live on the up, upper side of town, uh, faces off against uh, the other half of town called the Doonies, which are on the downward side of town near the port. And um, literally um, a, a ball, a homemade ball, is thrown from uh, the town center into this pack of players, which is usually around 200 men um, from either side. And for the next six hours, um, these two sides, the Uppies and the Doonies, compete um, to move this ball um, to their goal. So for the Uppies, they have to move it literally through the streets of town um, where the windows and doorways are all barricaded with good reason <laughs> because of the nature of this crazy right. scrum. Uh, they have to move it uptown and touch it to a wall to win. Um, the Doonies have to move it downtown and drop it into the bay in order to win. Other than that, there's literally no rules. There's, there's no uniforms. Um, you can use pretty much whatever means you want to get it there. Um, and typically it lasts about six hours, and it's an unbelievable frenzy. <laughs> is it split, or does usually one or the other win? Like, are the up the uppies like better because they're more well off? No, it's um it's pretty well balanced. Although the year I went, um, the Doonies hadn't won in like fifteen years, um, okay. and they weren't sure why. <laughs> but uh, I must have been good luck because I showed up and the Doonies won that year. <laughs> But the, but what's interesting about this game is one thing: it's just an incredible game to witness, right? It's just brings the whole community together. It's like this tradition passed on from father to son. Um, the ball is is literally a trophy. I mean, it's the most beautiful object you've ever seen. It's it's handmade just for that event, and whoever wins the ba that day gets to take it home and put it on their mantelpiece. And it's like this great point of pride in the community. Um, but the other thing that's cool about it is that this is actually a vestige of how soccer and really every form of football started back in like the 1300s. I mean, this is this is where football began in England and France. It was this mob game played on special feast days and community days, and so it's it's like you're witnessing this piece of history. Now, I don't want everyone to think that every story in this book or every piece of research that you did took place in some far-off land because, and I'm going to tell you, we have something slightly in common. So when uh -huh. I was a freshman in college, I was, I was taking, you know, English 101 or whatever, and we had to write a research paper. That was one of the uh, elements of the class. And my thesis was that football had taken over for baseball as America's pastime. And part of this book, you write a little bit about football and baseball and why you think uh Football has the edge right now. Now, people listen to the show and they hear from me all the time about football and baseball. So this is a great opportunity for you to say why you are on my side and think that football <laughs> has the edge on baseball in terms of being our pastime. Yeah, you know, I have to, I have to agree with you just in terms of, uh, you know, playing by the numbers. I mean, it's, you know, if you look at, if you look at the number of people that have, have watched um, you know, the most recent Super Bowls, and you compare that to uh, Major League Baseball World Series, it's, you know, it really doesn't compare. I mean, you know, I think it was something around 160 million people watched the last Super Bowl, and, 
Um, meanwhile, only 14 million, you know, watched the last uh, World Series. So, you know, there's just an enormous gap there. Um, yeah, I think there's, you know, part of it is, part of it, there's, there's an incredible nostalgia for the game of baseball with good reason. I mean, you know, the game, the game started, you know, with this sense of nostalgia. It's got that connection to America's past and, you know, our sort of pastoral roots, you know, and the small village green, the kids playing. I mean, there's this deep connection to baseball that, that is really unique. And I think football can't really quite match that. But in terms of just the sheer numbers of people that care about the game, I think that football is America's game. Yeah, there's no doubt there's no doubt about that. And you know, it's funny because I was talking with someone about how, you know, if you look back a hundred years, um, boxing and horse racing and baseball were the three biggest sports in America and, and football has, has really taken that over, but there there is one dilemma that football has and it's it's another thing that you talk about and that's the connection between sports and violence and how football has gotten yep gotten more and more violent and we just did an interview with mark cram jr who wrote a book about uh, a, a kid who was in, uh, paralyzed playing football and ultimately led himself to dr jack Orkian and assisted suicide we just had the junior say issue take place there's all kinds of fathers debating across the country whether their kids uh should play football what are your opinions on on the game and and the violence and the concussion issue and how it gets worse as sports get more sophisticated? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a you know obviously it's a serious problem with the sport and sport is sports going to have to face it uh, in a big way very soon. I mean, football is a violent sport at its core. It always has been. I mean, you go back even going back seven hundred years to the origins. It's it's a violent sport, and, and the violence is part of what attracts us to the game. It's part of what, you know, makes us want to watch and rivets our attention up to a point. Um, I think we've crossed. I think we've crossed a line. I mean, you know, in nineteen, you know, nineteen oh five, right? Eighteen, eighteen players were were killed on the field, and Teddy Roosevelt had to step in and get all the presidents of the university together, and you know that led to some reforms. But now, I, you know, I guess what's changed for me, and I look at the, the bounty issue as a part of this, you know, violence was never, in football, was never the object of the game. The object of the game was the game itself. It was, it was the ball. It was, you know, getting, getting the ball however you needed to get it. What really, what really uh, concerns me about the whole bounty issue is that, you know, the violence becomes the object of the game, you know, where... If 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 you're sending if you're sending players out to to take out another player, um, in that very deliberate way, and you're paying them for it, you know it really kind of shifts the whole nature of the game in in a direction where it's kind of, you know, what some people think it is, which is gladiatorial, you know, and um, and away from being a, a game. So so I think it's a big concern. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to do about it. Um, I understand the concerns about sort of you know, um, taking the excitement out of the game, like some players uh, don't want anything done. But um, at some point, people aren't going to want to watch the game, or as you said, aren't going to want their kids to play the game. And if the next generation doesn't start playing the game in high school, then suddenly you've got a, you've got a problem. The sportscasters are here with uh, John Fox, the John Fox, not that other guy who coaches the uh – football team over there. Yeah, uh, not that John, not that Johnny guy. come lately. Right. Uh, he's the author of a book called The Ball, Discovering the Object of the Game. It was released a couple of weeks ago, so it's in stores now. Uh, we have a copy 
to give away uh, to you. If you'd like, you can email us, sportscasters at gmail.com, as we mentioned before in the show. Um, last thing, John. Uh, the Olympics are this summer, and there's all kinds of games in the Olympics that uh, involve balls, some that don't, of course. Things like swimming come to mind. I don't think there's any balls there, but then, you know, there's water polo, then you throw a ball in the pool. Uh, as far as the Olympics goes, and, and this book, your, your publisher, sent, it comes with a, a little thing and uh, a little press clipping uh, to maybe to guide me through this interview or something, and it mentions that with the Summer Olympics, you hope to... Uh, that the book uh, gets a little bit of a wider um, bit of exposure because of that. Uh, how do the two tie in? Well, I mean, you know, the the, the obvious tie in is is the Olympics is you know next to the World Cup, the, the, the largest game, right? sporting event uh, that that brings everyone together. Um, so it it is this kind of universal moment, and it's a, it's a great moment to celebrate the fact that you know the ball is this thing that originated on every continent and brings all these different cultures and nationalities together. Um, so, you know, for me, it's, you know, as, as with the World Cup, just because those are two sort of big global events, I just think it's a great moment to shine a light on the positive aspect of these games that we play, um, which is that they, they do bring us together um, in ways like nothing else can. You know, it's it's a it's a unifying force when it when it's when it's used the right way, and that's the beautiful thing about sports. So, you know, just hoping that that uh, that theme comes out in the middle of all the other corruption, scandal, and nonsense we'll probably see around the Olympics as we usually do. Just the, just the positive spirit of the game. Uh, are you on Twitter? Do you have a blog? I mean, how can we find you if we want to know more about John Fox and your work and things like that? Sure, yeah. I've got a blog. It's at uh, johnfoxauthor.com. And uh, i got a Facebook page, facebook.com backslash johnfoxauthor. Great. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having a little bit of fun with us there in the beginning. We really appreciate it. Uh, again, it's it's a really cool book. It's called The Ball. It's got an just I just love the cover. Um, a really cool picture of a kid balancing a soccer ball on his head, and uh, it's one of those pictures mean a thousand words kinds of a thing. You know, you could go so many ways just looking at that picture. But uh, we really appreciate you being on the show and taking some time to talk to us with it. And best of luck with the book, John. All right, thanks so much, Steve. Thank you. All right, I want to thank the John Fox for joining us on the program today. Also want to thank Mark Cram Jr. for making his first appearance on the podcast. And also want to thank the great puck daddy, Greg Wyszynski. Oh, I blew that. Greg Wyszynski. <laughs> Darn Polish names. Good luck to your devils, I guess. <sighs> I, I don't mind the devils. I don't mind them. All right. If you want to find out more information about the Sportscasters, you can go to Facebook, www.facebook.com slash the Sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters. Our blog, the sportscasters.blogspot.com, the sportscasters.tumblr.com. We're going to do live blogs for the Stanley Cup Finals if it gets past Game 5. So I will do one for Game 6 sure. and or Game 7, just like I did last year. Also, we have a blog coming this week about the uh, behind the moves, uh, right, right. kind of a review of that. Um, again, www.nhlgms.com if you're interested in buying. We were just talking off the air. It's a little bit of a, a 
you got to check out the book. It's, yeah, you got to go to the website and see it. Go to the website and see it, and even that probably doesn't do it justice. It's just a real cool-looking book. Uh, last piece of business for today. Oh, and uh, you can find all that information about our blog and our Facebook and our Twitter and all that on our website, www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget to email us about the contest, the sportscasters at gmail.com. We've got to set out great books to give away. Last piece of business for today's show is pick four... And wow, did we suck last week. Yeah. We want to combine two and six. Ooh. One and three each. Uh, Don won the game of the week. Devils over the Rangers five to three in game five of the Eastern Conference Finals. He lost his pitcher, Zambrano, and the Marlins eight to four to the Rockies. He had the Sixers or the Celtics over the Sixers in game six of that series. Sixers forced to game seven, 82-75. And he predicted that the hockey's Western Conference Finals would end in seven instead of ending in five. Uh, his record, Don, for the season is 39-48. an ugly ending, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was something else. Yeah. Uh, I had Lance Lynn in the Cardinals over the Padres 6-3, to lost the Devils over the Rangers, lost the Sixers over the Celtics. And I thought Brad Richards would score the game-winning goal in the Eastern Conference Finals. That goal was scored by Adam Henrique, who has three goals in the playoffs this year. One of them, double overtime, game seven, around one, to oh, advance yeah. to round two. And the second of the, or the third of the three, was to advance to the, advance cup. To the cup. So two not of bad. three are very memorable. Not bad for a rookie just getting could his feet the, wet in the playoffs. Could be the rookie of the year, maybe. Yeah, he's nominated for, for that as well. So uh, nice rookie season. All right, our game of the week this week is that game one, uh, Kings at the Devils. And look, the Kings are getting tons and tons of praise, and deservedly so, but maybe the Devils are getting too little. Uh, they Everyone expected them to beat Florida, and maybe that took them longer than expected. They went to a Game 7. Nobody expected them to beat Philly. And Especially they, after they, Game 1. They walked all over them right. after Game 1. And I would say, arguably, they most people probably didn't expect them to beat the, the Rangers either, and they beat them in 6, so... I think they're a little bit underrated here. I know I've seen articles today where the Devils are, are downplaying a little bit the underdog role, but they're in it. Uh, the Kings have just been really, really impressive, but I think the Devils have done a good job adapting to their opponents, and I'll give them the first game at home. I'm going to take the Kings. I debated this all day long, and I can I can see both sides of it. I can see the Kings coming out flat because of the layoff. Yeah, eight days. And the Devils taking advantage of that. But... Uh, look, it, if if you ask me to pick this series right now, I think I go with Puck Daddy and I pick the Kings in seven. Yeah, like you said, there's some poetry to them winning it on the road, uh, given how well they've played sure. on still the road lost, in the playoffs. Right? They still haven't lost, and I'm not I'm not going to bet against them to lose on the road until they lose on the road. Sure. So I'm going to pick the Kings to just do what they've been doing and uh, beat the Devils in Game One, which is Wednesday, eight o'clock on NBC. That's right. Five of the seven games will be on the NBC network. The other two will be on the NBC Sports network. Not bad. Uh, my pitcher this week, which I've been terrible at. This should be the easiest thing to do is just pick a pitcher. Everyone says baseball is the easiest sport to bet. Well, thank God I'm not putting money on these because I've been awful. I'm going to go with Ryan Dempster in the Cubs. He hasn't won a game this year, so maybe I'll go with like a reverse Jinx type thing with Ryan Dempster. He's 0-3. His ERA is 2.14. So he's got a nice ERA. Cubs are at home. This is at San Diego. 
And damn it, if I didn't write down the day again. This has got to be a, a Wednesday game. All right, you find that. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take Derek Lowe. 6-3 uh, and three with the 3.35 ERA for the Indians over the Twins and Kyle Pavano, who's 2-4 and four of the 5.46 games Friday at 7.05 at Jacobs Field. Or yeah, what a, was Jacobs Field in Cleveland. I'm a disaster when it comes to writing down these game times for some reason. That game is Wednesday at 2.20 Eastern. So uh, Cubs over the Padres. My host choice this week, I'm going to go back to basketball and go Celtics at the Heat. That game is Wednesday, 8.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. And, look, to me, the Heat and LeBron in particular just seem to be locked in and are on a destiny. I don't know if they're going to be able to beat whoever comes out of the West, but it seems like they're going to be there with them. So give me the Heat. I, I, I don't know that this series even goes that long. Yeah, I'm with you. I got the same thing. Game two, Heat over Celtics. Uh, the game's like you said, it's Wednesday at 8.30 on ESPN. I'm with you 100%. I think the Heat are Heat are, are, are focused. They've been winning some games without Bosch. Maybe they get Bosch back at some point. But they're going to be in the NBA Finals, and they're going to be in the NBA Finals before uh, a team from the West is, in my opinion. That, that series, to yeah, me, is a lot harder right. yeah. to pick. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the Heat over the Celtics. My bold prediction this week isn't the most bold on paper, but I need wins, so I'm going to count it. Uh, the Kings have been unbeaten on the road, as we've mentioned already. I'm going to say they lose their first two to the Devils. Wow. I like it. Uh, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to say that the Spurs are going to beat the Thunder in five games or less. Wow. Uh, so I'll give the Thunder one win, but I, I just think that the Spurs have too much experience. For a team I haven't watched much in Oklahoma City, I mean, basketball in general I don't watch a lot of, but I have ridden them through the pick four, Oklahoma City, so I almost feel like they're kind of my team. So that, that's a really tough series to pick, though. It's really tough, and that's why this is bold. So I figured, you know what, I'm gonna just gonna go with the Spurs on that one. And I kind of I, I thought about doing it with the Heat, but it seems like every time we double down on these, <laughs> that bites us in the ass. Yeah. So like you said, we need wins. I'm gonna ride the Spurs. Do you know historically where they stand right now with nine straight playoff wins? Do you have any idea if what what the, what's the closest the team's gone to going? 16 and 0. I did read some stat about how one of the Bulls teams well, that like 15 won and it one or something had, crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, and then there was like an Oilers team uh in the NHL oh, really? who did it in um maybe it was got to the finals in 15 games. Wow. That's impressive so though. So 12 I mean, went, just, 12 and 3 or something. All the like stories that. have been about kind of LeBron and all this, but man, 9 and 0 and that's after riding some crazy win streak into the playoffs. Two quick things. Before we sign off, uh, one, Dennis Rodman has been sentenced on four counts of contempt for failing to pay child support. Come on. Ready for this punishment? Uh, He will have to complete 104 hours of community service and was put on three years of informal probation. The judge told Rodman to use his talents as a motivator to help others in need. If that doesn't work out, Rodman can always give tattoo advice. That's according to (laughs) Ben Mahler. Just pay him. Uh, yeah. Pay for your kids. And then the second piece of news is that, you know how we've been saying, we said earlier that U.S. tennis is maybe... Uh, lacking, a star. Lacking. Sure. Yeah, well, if you were hoping that Serena Williams was going to win the French Open, you could stop hoping that. Oh, no. Because uh, she is out. She is uh, has lost in the French Open um, to a tennis player that I'm her- sure no one has heard of, 111th ranked uh, Virginie Rosano of France. Wow. 
So uh, yeah, we were talking particularly about the men's side of it earlier, but yeah, that's that's not good. It looks like the women's side can need some help too. Williams came within two points of victory nine times Ooh. in the match. Uh, good thing she's got all those championships in the past. Otherwise, that one that's one that would sit with you for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so Serena. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Best of luck to your sister. Sure. All right, Don. Cue the hip. All right. <laughs> 